Hello everyone, this is Drew Precious, Director of Communications at the Presidential Precinct. I'm pleased to welcome you to Season 3 of the Global Founders Podcast. Here we will share highlights of our latest virtual programming initiatives, originally aired as Zoom events on the Presidential Precinct Network, featuring the voices of our program alumni and trusted experts working to further any of our six core focus areas. Thank you for joining us today on the Global Founders Podcast. Good afternoon and good evening, everybody. I'm Nancy Hopkins, Director of Programs at the Presidential Precinct, and I would like to extend a warm welcome to everybody who's uh, taking part today in our first ever online campfire conversation. Um, really happy you all could join us uh, today for what promises to be a really interesting and important and nuanced conversation about the impact uh, that COVID-19 is having on communities around the world. Um, and as I look at the list of folks who are here uh, this morning um, on our webinar, I'm delighted to see the names of friends and colleagues um, from all around the world, near and far, including uh, places like Bangladesh, Iraq, uh, Colombia, St. Kitts and, and Nevis, um, and Namibia, as well as the United States. Um, and then, of course, we have our three fantastic panelists from uh, Kenya, Dominican Republic, and Nepal. And we can't wait to hear your perspectives this morning uh, and also to take some great questions and get in a good conversation with the, the folks who are on the call. Uh, to get us started, I'm going to hand the virtual microphone over to our moderator this morning, uh, Doug Smith. But let me just say a few words about Doug before I do. Uh, Doug is the managing partner of Stornoway Advisors, which is a global strategy consultancy. Uh, Doug has more than two decades of experience in product development, uh, program implementation and evaluation, uh, and public policy work. And he's passionate about uh, leadership development, uh, accelerators, humanitarian and development work, uh, and government relations. Doug has held uh, leadership positions in numerous nonprofit and private sector organizations, uh, including as vice president at James Madison's Montpelier, one of our presidential precinct partner institutions, where he was at the helm of the Center for the Constitution. Um, and we know you'll enjoy uh, hearing from Doug this morning, and I'll let Doug introduce our panelists. Thank you, Nancy, and, and thank you to the presidential precinct uh, for hosting these very important conversations. What I'd like to do this morning is introduce our panels very quickly and then get into the content itself. Uh, first joining us from uh, Nairobi is Narima Were. Uh, she's a scholar and researcher with a strong legal background. Uh, she's currently managing the Sexual and Reproductive Rights Program of the Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network on HIV and AIDS. She's a member of the 2018 Mandela Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders. Welcome, Narima. Um, Amalia Dela Cruz is joining us from the Dominican Republic today. Her uh, specialty is the impact of the economy on social and government sectors, as well as the impact of the economy on vulnerable communities. She is an economist herself, and she comes to us from the 2019 Global Leadership Forum. And finally, coming to us from Nepal is Upaj Batari. Uh, he is a community activist from Nepal. He's working with the Hope Nepal Association for Social Welfare, where he focuses on a broad range of community engagement, including around the issues of trafficking, community mobilization, and youth. And he was a participant also in the Global Leadership Forum that the precinct held, but in 2017. 
And then there's you, uh, those of you who are joining us around the world for these campfire conversations. We're gonna be opening the panel up to your questions here in about halfway through our time. Uh, and so feel free to use the Q&A uh, icon at the bottom of the screen if you'd like to submit questions or comments as we go. And in preparation for your participation, let's now head over to our panel. So panelists, despite the fact that so much of what we're experiencing is a global health pandemic, I think it would be hard to argue that most of the coverage isn't localized um, that we're seeing in the media. And so I wonder if we might begin this morning by asking, um, just so everyone on the call understands, give us a sense of what the pandemic has meant for you and in your country. What are you experiencing? What are you seeing? And maybe even what are you most concerned about? Let's start with Narima. Um, thank you, Doug, and thank you everyone for joining. Um, so it's evening for me, so good evening. It's about 6 p.m. in Nairobi. Um, so yes, it is a global pandemic, but there are very localized issues that are not coming out in the forefront, especially with the media. And that's understandable, obviously, because there's numbers that people need to rat out consistently, but those numbers actually have people behind them. So at least within the context of Kenya, one of the things that we've seen that have been very concerning is we have specific uh, measures that we've put in place, guided obviously by the World Health Organization and also in some sense copying from other countries and what's been working elsewhere. However, we have significantly failed to localize our context to see how these measures work in our country and ensure that our people are protected within this. So like some of the major concerns that we have, uh, myself as a woman, as a feminist in this, in this space, but also as an organization is really around what does this pandemic mean for women and girls? What does this mean for marginalized communities? What does this mean for vulnerable communities? And for the most part, it's not necessarily the threat of the disease that has been damaging, but the pandemic response itself. So in Kenya, for instance, we have a curfew between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m. And we've been asked to work from home and to practice social distancing, which all sounds good on paper. However, in reality, 82% of women in the workforce in Kenya are in the informal sector. So working from home is not necessarily an option for most people because they work based on daily wages. So if you don't go, you don't earn. So if you ask people not to go, then that means they don't earn and they can't buy food. The other aspect is when 82% of women are in the informal sector where they earn a daily wage, when children are sent home from school, which they have been at this stage for the past month, schools have been closed, home-based childcare then shifts to parents who might not necessarily have the option of having a child, another caregiver. Another thing that disproportionately affects women is care for sick, care for the sick within this pandemic period and just generally care for the sick is quite heavily dependent on women. So if you increase this with home-based childcare and caring for sick people, it becomes very problematic for women. Another aspect is that 70% of nurses more than 70% of nurses in Kenya are women. So most of the frontline workers within the pandemic response are women and to some extent girls. So what does that mean for having them, having the home-based childcare, having them have to be in the frontline and not having necessarily protective gear to ensure that they can continue to do their work. So a number of issues are coming up around the pandemic response, the curfew, access to services for women and girls, particularly reproductive health services. So when you have a curfew between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m., and you might have pregnant women within this period of time, 
that are pregnant people, they can't actually access healthcare services in that period of time. And we haven't seen any nuance by the police in implementation of the curfew. So the first day of the curfew in Kenya, which was the 27th of March, we had six deaths because the police were very brutal in enforcing the curfew. And this has been increasing since the first day. So the brutality that comes with implementing a curfew then means people are not likely to leave their houses, even if need emergency care within curfew hours. So the lack of nuance and implementation of the response mechanisms has been quite problematic. Um, if we then look at access to reproductive health services, there's the issue around the curfew, but then there's also the issue around the movement of resources towards other aspects. So you might have resources being moved to facilities whereby are now being declared COVID-19 facilities, which then means the communities that utilize those facilities can no longer access them for other healthcare services. And as resources continue to shift towards COVID-19, you have more and more women giving birth at home. You have more people foregoing contraceptives. You have more people foregoing other aspects of healthcare, which means that you might have increased maternal mortality numbers, increased lack of access to, to skilled birth attendants, just as a result of a lack of physical access to facilities. So for the most part, we have measures in place. And we can understand why the state would want to put these measures in place, but there's a lack of nuance in how these apply in our economy given we have a very different economy for most global North countries and how these would apply for vulnerable communities within our country. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a bit. And I'd, I'd like to get back to some of that because you definitely mentioned some key vulnerable communities. And I'd like to speak also in a little bit about uh, the role of government, particularly the police in exacerbating the challenges. But before we get there, I wonder if we could hear from Amalia about, uh, we're gonna head to the Caribbean now. Um, what are you seeing in the Dominican Republic? It's a, it's a very different reality uh, than Kenya, uh, but you probably share some of the same concerns. Yes, um, actually when I was hearing Nerima talk, it's not that different Kenya from the DR. Um, right now we have about 6,000 people confirmed with the, uh, the COVID-19. We have um, around almost 300 deaths. It's one of the highest um, death rate in Latin America and the Caribbean countries. Uh, the first positive case was in March, in March 1st, I guess, I think. And then we started having um, isolation and corpus from March 8, 19. So we had about two weeks delay in the government implementing any measures from distancing and working from home and also closing non-essential um, businesses. Um, right now we have, we are working from home, most of the businesses or, or most of the jobs that are able to do so. Um, we have a curfew from 5 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, it started from 8 p.m. to, to 4 p.m. but then um, it wasn't working, people were still going out. so. Now we have longer curfews. And as the case in, in Kenya, um, as Nerima was mentioning here, the, the police was given a lot of power to impose the curfews. So that means that they are taking the force to make people either stay home or 
um, taking them to the jails in case they they are not like, they are not um, able to to apply to that to, to those hours. Um, so in that sense, um, what we are seeing is not it's not an equal treatment to everyone. Um, it's not the same as if a white person uh, in a prosperous or rich neighborhood will leave their houses at 8 p.m. as if it was at 5.15 at a marginalized community. We're seeing videos on social media of people going out to get food or to just sitting in the, in the front doors and people are making them um, jump onto their cars and taking them to the, to the precinct or they are, um, they are punching them, um, they are being brutalized. So it's not the same. It's not the same treatment rich people, white rich people get from those black poor people are getting. Um, so um, besides that police brutality that Naima was mentioning, we also have about 1 million jobs that were lost in the, in the last month. And those were mainly in the construction sector, tourism sector, and the prisons um, that coincidentally are the three main um, employment sources in the DR. And in the case of construction sector, they are mainly occupied by Haitian migrants. Uh, yeah, people from Haiti that were born there or that they were born here, but they are from Asian descent. So in that case, the most vulnerable people are being the most affected by this, um, by this situation. Um, in this case, the most affected are Haitian, immigrant, other migrants like Venezuelans, also elderly, um, people with pre-existing health conditions, and uh, women that are both in the uninformal sector and also that they are the caregivers in their houses. Um, so it's, it is a pandemic that is affecting to everyone, just not in the same way or uh, the same like, degree, the same level for everyone. Thank you very much for that perspective. And Upaj, I think one of the things your colleague has just really raised is uh, the informal economy. Um, and I know that in Nepal, that's something that's really um, quite prevalent, as well as people who are working in other countries sending money back and the economic impact that's having on Nepal. Uh, can you tell us what you're seeing and experiencing and what perspective you, you bring to the table? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Dog, and the presidential precinct. Actually, the point that you raise is quite really, really a big concern now here in Nepal. So Nepal, it has got a border with China, Tibet, and it was really at a high risk very at the beginning. But we have a quite good news is that though Nepal had a first case of COVID-19 on 25th January, that's a couple of months back, but till now we have just got 54 cases and then already uh, over 16 cases they are, they are recovered and then uh, the country is in com complete lockdown so uh, it's a 36 days that Nepal is in complete lockdown the schools closed college everything the universities closed the industries they are all closed and uh, you know the big impact that Nepal faces is the the remittance. Remittance. The Nepali workers, most of them, uh, they are they go to the Gulf countries like Malaysia, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Dubai. They are also hardly hit by this pandemic. 
And because of that reason, the countries are also, in, in a way, there are no work and they are not able to send the money back to back home. So that means that the remittance that contributes to the like 25th percent of the GDP of Nepal that is contributed by uh, the the remittance in back in year 2019. But because of that reason, uh, the millions of people, we according to the uh, data, we have 3.5 billion Nepalese living abroad and working over there. Out of that, even um, like if you take just the case of Qatar, there are around 400,000 Nepalese working over there. So that means that they are losing their job. They are losing their job. They are not getting their job. They are not getting paid because this is a problem worldwide. So for that reason, and there's a national-wide lockdown, uh, similarly the aviation, there are no international flights as well as the domestic flights. That means they are not able to come back to the Nepal one, uh, one thing that is one good re uh, one good uh, uh, there's one good thing is that because uh, the uh, the cases uh, because they are not able to come to the Nepal that means that the spread of the COVID-19 uh, to some extent is uh, is is controlled because uh, to some extent is controlled because of that reason because there is a complete uh, movement is completely stopped. So, but uh, is the countries like United uh, United Arab Emirates (UAE) they are saying that they are saying the countries like Nepal to take their citizens back because they are struggling to uh, fight this problem, and then they are even uh, threatened the governments if they if they are unwilling to take the citizens back. That means that they will terminate the, the contract with the countries who send them the workers. So that means that if they come, if the Nepal, once the lockdown is over. Then if they send those people back to Nepal, that means the first of all there is a great great impact on the economy. The other thing is that is Nepal Nepal is obviously it's not capable to accommodate or the quarantine those millions of the people that come from the abroad. So that is that will be the already a challenge. We have an open border with India. Similarly, we have millions, like two million people in India. They work there and then they come back to Nepal. There's an open border. And then that's already a challenge. So the border is blocked. There are other ways, uh, I mean, uh, other ways that they make it to the Nepal and also from Nepal, they go to India. So that means that the Nepal is still the challenge. That's one side in, uh, if you take up the spread of the COVID-19 and this impact. But what happens is that, as Narima says, in the case of uh, Kenya, there the people who are in the informal work sector, because the company is complete lockdown, that means that there no no one is allowed to go outside and work. That means that for those people who work daily on daily basis, daily wage worker or work in the informal sector, they are not getting paid. They are not getting money, and the support that the government provides to them, the relief support, that is not you know, enough to, uh, you know. Uh, sustainable. That's not sustainable. And even there are not there are thousands of people who are not receiving it. So for that reason, thousands of people already moved from the city area to their village area. They are walking overnight. They are walking over 400 and 500 kilometers, carrying their babies and their um, on their you know um, on their arms, and then they are walking miles and miles to, just to get to the home so that they could get at least some food there or they could stay safe over there. So this fear, this uh, the people. Uh, on the impact of it on the informal sector, that's really, really a huge impact in Nepal. One more thing.
thing that I would like to highlight now here is that Nepal had, uh, uh, you know, declared uh, visit Nepal year 2020. So that had started back in January, but you know, because of this pandemic, it was cancelled. So Nepal had expected around two million tourists to visit Nepal. So tourism is another another great uh, sector that contributes like eight percent of the economy. So that means that a lot of people who live in the mountain region, the Himalayan region, they they make money out from the tourism. And then Nepal, uh, five years back in 2015, Nepal was hardly hit by the massive earthquake. And then already those people were the already the people were they lost their home, they lost their job, they lost everything. Their livelihood was completely damaged. And this uh, tourism year 2020 was expected to boost the economy that was hardly hit by the uh, massive earthquake. But because of this, uh, the cancer, because of this COVID-19, the uh, the pandemic, and the people are they are again they are again pushed down into the poverty. They are again put their livelihood is completely damaged and they are really struggling to survive in this time of pandemic. So it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge for a country like Nepal. Yeah, so all, it's interesting, all three of you have important tourism uh, industries that are being affected by this. I wonder if I might turn to Amalia here as the economist. Um, you probably have a unique perspective, not just on how COVID-19 is impacting the economy, but it's really exacerbating traditional marginalization. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Yes. Um, one thing that I'm working on right now is on food security and trying to get the sense of how people losing their jobs and losing their means of life is going to affect them to secure housing, food, and other essential needs. So what's going to happen here, right now we have a lot of produce and we have um, enough food, but because of the, restrict, the restrictive measure, measures in mobilization and um, in transportation, there might be, we might get to a point where people are not able to get food. And that also translates into um, farmers if they don't see the, their food being bought, they are not going to keep producing and, and keep farming. So we might have an issue uh, there regarding food where there's a lot of food right now, it's going to waste, and then in a few months, we are not going to be producing enough food and we are not going to be having import, um, import yes, imports or um, commerce with other countries, so we won't have enough food to to be able to to live by. So in that sense, people that are that are not close to the markets, people that are in the rural areas, people that um, have to walk a thousand miles to just to get to to a point where they can buy food, they, these are the people that are going to be most uh, affected. Also, because what I mentioned, and my other um, partners also did. Tourism here is one of the main economies. So right now there's a thousand people without, thousands of people without jobs, uh, which means, and they were already in vulnerable positions. They were already uh, living by day by day or paycheck by paycheck. So not having um, a secure job is going to increase poverty in the DR. It's going to make children go to work when this is over. Like, Parents are going to be um, their kids 
trying to get some money to put food on the table. We are also going to see increase in um, delinquency or how do you say it? Uh, yeah, uh, crimes and thefts and um, just criminalized criminalization in the streets. It's going to be more insecure to go out. So this pandemic is not just affecting the health sector and the health system, and it's not just bringing out how um, in the in this in the case of VR how inappropriate and or, or how insufficient it is it's also going to be widening up the gap between the two sectors the two social sectors right now people having secure jobs or formal and um, yeah formal and secure jobs are doing fine they are working from home they have computers they have uh, internet people that live they they live to get money day to day. They are not going to be in the same position. They are living in a very, um, in a small house, not the most proper house. Um, we're seeing pictures of people, uh, five, five, a family of five sleeping on the same bed and, uh, or women that are being abused at their homes, staying with their abuser at this, like, during this, um, during all this time. So those cases are, we are, are what we are seeing um, that is happening on the, on the streets. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I picked up um, when we heard from Narima that this was a significant concern, Narima, that you have around children and families, um, particularly women in sexual violence. And I wonder um, if you could expound upon that um, and maybe even drop in what's th what that's meant uh, for security forces and police as well. Uh, because I think you indicated they're very focused on curfews and maybe not as focused on domestic violence right now. Um, yes, thanks, Dan. I think I would just add to what Amelia is saying, like significantly, this is going to deepen inequality and it is deepening inequality. And with the issues around violence and sexual violence or gender-based violence as a whole, we already recorded increased cases within the country in the first month after we got our first case, which was on the 12th of March. So we already recorded increased numbers with 40% of all cases um, that had been reported to the public prosecution's office being sexual violence cases. And now we already have significant issues around shelters and protection of women because we don't have government-sponsored shelters within our country. Now in a situation where you have a curfew to exacerbate that is that if the violence is occurring during curfew period, you actually can't leave. And if you do leave, you're likely to leave to be criminalized for breaching curfew and not actually to seek services from police. So with policing not being nuanced at this time, Women are put in situations whereby it's you stay in the house and continue to be violated, or if you do leave, you risk violence outside from the police. And in most cases, people would rather stay in the house. And even if they were able to leave, there are no shelters available to take care of them. And for the most part, what people, what the police have been doing is even if once you breach curfew, you're not actually going to prison, you're being mandatorily quarantined at your own cost. So mandatory quarantine right now is at own cost. And initially it was mandatory quarantine was being utilized for people who are traveling into the country um, after the 23rd of March. 
So everybody who traveled into the country was taken into mandatory quarantine for a 14 day period. And that was either going to happen within a government facility or in a private hotel and the cost differs. Now, all breaches of curfew are being treated as mandatory quarantine offenses where then you take into mandatory quarantine, which rationally doesn't make sense, but also has the likelihood of increasing people, people's being exposed. Um, so for children as well, the concern is given the situation of having children at home, not having child-based home care, not having facilities available to take care of children, if your parents don't have access to facilities for you and don't have access to child-based home care and need to travel, because we don't actually have a full lockdown and need to travel to work but can't take you with them and can't afford to have somebody to take care of you, a lot of children are being left at home alone because their parents aren't there and need to continue working. And especially in informal settlements where the houses are like house upon house upon house upon house, the likelihood of anyone knowing that this child is at home by themselves is quite high. And that then incre increases the risk for danger for children. And also the likelihood of parents and caregivers not having the capacity to care for them and actually communicate effectively in this period is quite problematic. Like we saw in Norway, the prime minister of Norway had a press conference to speak to children. There actually hasn't been any effort to disseminate information that is for children for them to understand what this means. They've just been pulled out of school, sent home, told you can't leave the house, and the younger they are, the more likely it is that this is affecting them emotionally and mentally. And there's nothing being put in place to take care of that. And this is also true for these people living with disabilities. There is no information being provided for them that they can understand and they can consume. So continuously, we are deepening inequality amongst populations that are already being treated unequally. And we're acting like we can have a one-size-fits-all response to the pandemic and people will come out in the same way. And that's not true. Yeah, I think that's, that's very helpful to here. Upaj, I want to bring you in on the conversation because of your keen interest on the issue of trafficking uh, and the work that you're doing in Nepal as well. Um, I presume, A, that you are feeling similar concerns about the exacerbation of tensions with vulnerable communities, but I also want to begin to shift over and ask what it is that you, and I'll ask this of the other panelists as well, think that governments uh, and community activists can be doing now to really start turning the corner and using this opportunity as a way to build stronger communities and stronger response mechanisms. Before you answer that, I do want to remind everyone who's on the call that if you use the Q&A, the question and answer icon at the bottom of the screen, you are able to ask questions and we'll get to those questions in just a moment. But before we do that, Upaj, uh, if you could jump in, I think it'd be great. Yes, thanks, Doug. Yes, uh, now in Nepal, around 22,000 people, over 22,000 people are in quarantine. These quarantines are not the uh, proper buildings. Uh, let's say that these quarantines are, some schools are transformed into the quarantine. They are makeshift or tents and they really the temporary shelters that's mean for the quarantine. And uh, when I was, I was assessing some of the quarantine that was built, uh, set up in the Eastern part of the Nepal. When I saw, when I was uh, doing a 
my kind of assessment, what I found was that the people, the main women, there is not even the separate uh, facilities for men and women. They are all huddled together in the same room in some places. Even the children, as young as seven or eight, were there. They were not accompanied by the adults, too. So those people who traveled from the another district, or let's say that um, not from that district, but from another area within Nepal, they were placed in quarantine. So some of the people, they were given an option whether they want to stay in their own home quarantine. So but not all people are able to afford that, have a home quarantine. So that means that they have to stay in a quarantine center, which doesn't have a, a basic facilities uh, like food or the lights, electricity, or even uh, so they are living in a situation where there is no proper security. So that means those communities, they are more invulnerable. So that means that they could be easily targeted by the uh, by the perpetrator. They could be easily targeted is back in, you know, uh, in the 2015 earthquake is there was a lot of traffickers. They took that opportunity, you know, to convince these people or the communities of these uh, vulnerable communities. And then they trafficked them um, uh, within the country as well as outside the country. So this, this risk is, is still, the risk is there, the same risk is there that the, the children or the girls or the women who are in quarantine, first of all, they could be abused, exploited there, and the government has been given proper, uh, you know, probably it has got more focus on how to keep the people uh, in quarantine rather than how to ensure the safety and security of these uh, vulnerable people or the children or the, or the, or the women or, or, or of others' uh, sexual orientation, so that's a that's a big challenge that even we are facing. And one more thing, uh, that's when we talk about uh, at the same time about the issues of the women or the other marginalized communities. One thing that uh, that that rose in Nepal uh, recently, and that is quite common in India now, is that the the Islamophobia is increasing. The Islam, the Muslim community is really in minority in Nepal. And what happened is that uh, uh, in India there were some cases, uh, some cases were seen that uh, uh, some of the you know the when they were carrying out the prayers in the uh, in, the, in the mosque, and then they blamed that they were the one who carried the uh, disease. And then uh, this thing was intensified so usually that the local communities, they had, uh, they had hatred toward the Muslim community, that they blamed them as the carrier of the COVID-19, the pandemic. And then even there were some attacks in uh, Indian side, that is uh, my place, uh, I mean, it has the border with India. So even the other side uh, of Nepal, uh, that there was the number of attacks on the Muslim community. So because of that recent Islam is also in rise. So that is a really, uh, a really a danger in countries like Nepal, which has got religious tolerance from age-old religious, religious tolerance. So I want to come back to the issues of the trafficking. That is the challenge now. And then we are seeing some cases. Uh, we are already hearing the news of the girls being uh, molested or abused in, in those quarantines. And even the kids are not receiving the uh, proper attention. They are not with their parents or let's say the, uh, the, their caretakers. So that is, is a problem of Nepal. Okay, well, thank you. You know, one of the things that we keep really raising as an issue is vulnerable communities now are more vulnerable than before. One of the questions that's coming from our participants uh, is coming from Hollerindo Timbo. Um, and Hollerindo, 
Hollerinda, excuse me, uh, really wants to know if any of you have had experiences or are aware of what this has meant for the transgendered community, um, given the various difficulty uh, in the layers of legality and recognition um, as they now have to enter often into a health system that may or may not recognize them. Has anyone had an experience with that? I, so I, I think the answer is you know, not quite yet, um, but I think this is one of many vulnerable communities that we should be aware of. Um, another question is coming in from Frederick in Kenya. Um, and I think, Narima, it goes back to your comment about people having to pay for their, uh, for their own lockup, for their, you know, their own bills. And I think Frederick wants to know if you think that there's space for NGOs to come in and to provide financial assistance to address that injustice. Um, hi, so let me respond to both. I think with regards to transgender communities, while we haven't yet seen the direct impact, but the communities that we have worked with and the organizations that we do work with, we have to be cognizant one of the type of work that transgender people are mostly pushed into. And within the context of Kenya, a lot of people within the transgender community actually are in sex work. And sex work has been greatly impacted by the pandemic because of the curfew hours and then the ability to continue to, to do their work has been greatly impacted. So then there's an obvious gap on access to work at this point or ability to do your work. Another issue is there is definitely issues around reproductive health services at this time for women generally, but women in all their manifestations and men in all their manifestations. And this is going to obviously impact transgender persons and L anyone within the LGBTQI um, family, so to speak, more aversely than it would maybe a cisgender woman because we're already seeing difficulty with cisgender women accessing services. This would be heightened for a trans woman. And there's just a lack of recognition of the fact that this cannot just be treated as one size fits all. And now problematically with reproductive health services, with reproductive health services, we have, even in childbirth, we have nurses, doctors refusing to assist in childbirth because they don't have PPEs, so protective equipment or protective gear. So they're refusing to assist in childbirth. So being able to access regular health services is going to become more difficult within this period for all Kenyans. This is heightened when there's already a bias against you by a healthcare worker as a trans person. So if they're not doing it for cisgender people, they're going to have a heightened bias against trans people. So definitely that is a continuing issue in terms of nuancing how this is affecting different communities. Um, with regard to Frederick's question, it's a very good one. It's a huge problem we're having. So I would say at present, there's already two cases before the constitutional court to challenge the cost of mandatory quarantine. So they were filed last week, so it's going to be a continuing discussion. What I would say that is necessary for us to do as civil society at this time is to hold the government to account because the government of Kenya has already borrowed a borrowed billion dollars as part of this pandemic response. So it's quite unclear where this money is going to go if mandatory quarantine for 400 people cannot be catered for by the government. Because they've only quarantined 462 people in total thus far, but they haven't catered for any person's quarantine. 
So if you're in a government facility, it's $20 a night. If you're in a hotel, it's about $100 a night. And if you don't have the means to pay that, they will detain you, which is also unlawful, but they will detain you until you pay it. So it's a continuing question as to how we hold our states to account for monies that they borrow towards a pandemic response that we do not see being utilized. Nurses don't have protective equipment. Nurses haven't been trained. Doctors haven't been trained. We're not seeing an increase in facilities or a strengthened health system, yet we have the money in our country. Molly, I'd like to bring you in here um, because as an economist, I know that you're quite keen on looking at the structural issues. Um, as you're looking into your economic crystal ball and thinking about what communities can do in response here, um, what are you thinking? How are you approaching this? Uh, or how would you recommend your colleagues around the world approach not only the marginalization, but how can we learn from this and actually begin to transition to something that's more just and, and equitable? Yes, um, as I was preparing for this panel, I was thinking about that too. And one thing that came to mind, well, two things came to mind. One is threatening social networks in the slums and in marginalized communities. So people are actively um, working towards bedding, and towards preparing themselves and in, in making their um, cases more heard. People, people should know what's going to ha what's happening in those places, in those slums, in those um, neighborhoods. So uh, we have to bring people living there, so the voices are are heard. And the other part is social organizations to be working on, to be working on advocating for better social protection systems and uh, focusing on emergency preparedness. Um, this is a really unique situation because any none of the countries were uh, prepared to for an emergency, a health emergency. Um, and I think, I think it's very obvious uh, when we see how much the hospitals are struggling, how much um, the doctors, um, the nurses, the police, um fire the firefighters how much everyone in the front lines are struggling um so i think it's it's key that we prepare the the emergency response um in the future i think they are going to to continue happening um situations like this not another pandemic hopefully uh but with the um, climate change and with this this being more recurrent, um, we're going to be using more this this prepared these emergency systems more frequently. Um, one thing that I would like to to focus to highlight now is that we are focusing right now on the um, the health emergency, and we are not thinking about the humanitarian crisis that's going to to come after this and the, the economic impact and the social impact this is going to bring. So I think one thing that the social organizations can do is also highlighting that and making that a focus point on the discussions with the government, being that local or national governments, because we do need to be prepared for the next three, five, six months when this is over, how um, how many how many more people are going to be in poverty? How many more people are going to be um, with health conditions because of for for food consumption or for or for 
or because they are not being able to access health care now. Um, as Namina was mentioning, um, right in the DR, hospitals and clinics are only accepting people with really emergency um, situations or just with COVID symptoms. So everything that is not in those two groups are not being taken care of. So in the future, there's going to be a lot of people going to the doctors because they were staying at home and not being like with an emergency at the moment and it's going to be worse in three months. And also people with poor nutrition or with anemia, they are also going to be affecting the health, the health system in a few months. Um, with the education, having children being homeschooled, it's, it's a really um, segue to the, to the current situation, the current state, but not every children have access to internet or has a computer at their home. So um, just the same as the other topics we were mentioning, some children are going to be left out of this, uh, of this of the education system and they are going to be in a worse scenario when we return to the normal yeah. so focusing on how we're going to be mitigating those effects in the near future that's going to happen in five six months um, is also key right now and i think we can all be advocating for that that's helpful. Um, so here's a question, and just a reminder, we are taking questions at the Q&A icon at the bottom of the screen. Here's a question from Immaculate uh, who asks, how are governments ensuring that relief aid reaches vulnerable and needy people in the country? You know, what measures are in place to locate it all? And I, I think that matches well with a question that Jim Murray has asked, which is, at this stage, for each of you, I mean, does your country have enough equipment? Do you have the personal protective equipment that you need? Um, and if not, and you'd suddenly need those, do you know where they're gonna come from? Anyone? Well, we do not have enough. Um, doctors don't have enough. I think the UN is importing and buying some from uh, other countries, uh, but it's taking too long because of the restriction restriction in movements, um, but they are really expensive. Um, some hospitals are having one doctor to care for everyone with COVID in a whole shift. That's 12 days with your equipment on because you can't be changing it every time you go out of the of the room. So that's just putting a, putting a lot of pressure on our healthcare workers and also um, in the in the system that was already in ruins, so to speak, um, hospitals were already complaining about not having enough resources to pay the doctors, and now doctors are working 12, 15 hours a day, uh, and they are not getting paid that much money for the extra hours. So we do not have enough equipment. Um, we're seeing people uh, delivering foods from the government government employees delivering food to houses and they are not fully equipped not because they are not they don't understand the importance of being uh, prepared or protected but because they don't have access to it and we do not manufacture manufacturer manufacturer i don't know how to say it but we do not make it here so we have to import it and it's taking yeah. longer than uh, that we are used to so um maybe upaj we, we pull you in 
on this question here. Um, part of it's about access, but maybe the more important question is also uh, how do people who are working in governments or working in civil society organizations know where to access the aid? Yes, Nepal, now the government has said it's a one-door policy. So that means that all the donations or all the funds that uh, is collected, that should go through the government channel. And obviously, though implemented uh, in a right way, it is the good one, but we see the problem in the countries like Nepal that, that these relief items never reach to the people. Uh, never reach to the vulnerable communities. Uh, uh, that's the big problem. And what I want to also focus on here that declaring lockdown or health emergency or emergency alone is not enough. The situation in post the post pandemic situation is going to be more alarming to these people, these vulnerable people, uh, rather than, I mean, there will be more deaths. Uh, caused by the over uh, hunger or more death caused by the lack of the health facilities rather than the uh, pandemic itself in the countries like Nepal. That's a, that's a, that's a big challenge. So um, though, as I said, that really items we the, uh, is she said, Amelia said that the, uh, how these health workers are struggling uh, uh, with the really minimum resources of, let's say, the, PPE or other equipments that the health workers need. The situation is the same over here. Though we had enough time, we had a, the government had enough time to have the stock of it all because we had a case first in January and then um, now it's, it's growing. So we had at least more than a month time for prepare, to prepare up about it. So that means that it still there was not preparedness. That means that the work that the government is putting, the effort that the government is putting on to contain this virus is, is not enough. So just declaring the lockdown is not enough, rather it's putting these vulnerable communities, the, the, the workers, the daily wage workers, the women, the children, and the marginalized community more in danger. So that's a problem really, dog. yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, Rima, I'd like to close this out by asking each of you, but starting uh, with you in Nairobi, um, are you hopeful in this situation? Where are you finding glimmers of hope for what we can become um, as better humans in the midst of this kind of adversity? Um, hmm, hope. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult time, but I do think more than hope there's an opportunity. And I feel like the opportunity available to us as human beings is for the first time to actually try to gender and nuance our responses, either as a disaster or as a health pandemic, just to gender it and to nuance it. I feel like there's been pandemics before and there's been an equitable impact of those pandemics before, but we've never actually taken the time to consider what does this mean for the next time? Um, I think a good example would be Ebola in um, DRC and Ebola in Sierra Leone, where there's high increase in maternal mortality, not as a result of Ebola, but because of Ebola, but because women couldn't access hospitals. So we have an opportunity to, for once to get the data available that we need to, to show us that if this ever happens again, this is what we need to do to ensure that it doesn't, it's not repeated. The other thing is that 
as a world, we need to confront the fact that our systems are not working effectively for everyone. And so we cannot go back to them as they were. We need to reconsider it. For Kenya, for instance, we are trying to create social protection, access to healthcare services, reform policing over one pandemic that we needed to do over the last decade of having a constitution. So it's basically, you should have had this in place. You didn't, so let's reconsider what it means like to have an actual police service, what it means to have social protection, what it means to have job protection, what it means to have healthcare services available for all. And we have the opportunity to, to, to do that for once. We can sit down, we can be sober, we can decide. Let's look at our systems. They're not working. How do we recreate them so that we're, they're more inclusive, more gendered, more nuanced, and more cognizant of everyone within any borders? So I, I, I think that there's more hope in there than, uh, <laughs> than you might feel. Upaj, uh, give me 30 seconds. I need hope from Nepal. You know, in, in 2015, you, uh, your country in Nepal had a, a tremendous earthquake that damaged so much, I believe. And what I'm hearing from Narima is that um, this is an opportunity for people to, to look outside of just themselves. So give us 30 seconds of hope. Yes. The one great hope that Nepal has now with this pandemic is that lots of people, thousands and millions of people, Nepalese, who work outside, who gathered new skills, who have got the new skills, and then they're coming back now. The Nepal, the, the economy is hugely based on the agriculture. So if that skills, if there is skills, and if there are, I mean, the subsidies given to these people who return back to the Nepal, that will be a great opportunity for Nepal to revitalize the economy that was hardly hit, not only by the Earthquake, but also by this pandemic, because there is a huge opportunity in agriculture. It has got the geography, the terrain is so so different in Nepal that we have got the Himalayas mountains and the terrain. We can grow all the crops, so that I mean, those people who come back in Nepal, they obviously come with the new skills, new technologies, new innovations, and things. So if the government put effort on that one, so that it will be a panacea actually in the case of Nepal to overcome this problem so that I mean that will be a great opportunity for a country like Nepal I guess so yeah great thank you and Amalia you get the last word here I'm, I'm looking for hope from the Dominican Republic well I am a very hopeful person so my hope is that after this we look at what is important not just an, as an individual but also as a whole, as a community, as a country. I think um, here in the ER is a big issue, the wages, doctors, nurses, um, policemen, um, firefighters, they, they, the wages they have, it's not sufficient to live or to have a dignified living. So I'm hoping that this situation, this pandemic is going to highlight the importance of those, those sectors. Um, and restructure how they are financed, how they work, um, the, how they are trained. And also, as I mentioned before, this, this pandemic is going to deepen the gaps between different social sectors. So I'm hoping that we see this as a consequence of the capitalism and how the system is built and how um, the, opportunities, the opportunities are not the same for everyone. So I'm hoping we all see that and we all try to work to change that. 
I think there are a lot of people working on the ground and I think uh, we, all, we just need to be uh, in this together um, and try to fight this fight together. Well, I appreciate that, that mark of solidarity and I hope you have felt you're in solidarity with each other and the many people from around the world who've joined us at this stage. Thank you so much for the work that you do day in and day out and the, the ways you inspire us all. Um, and thank you to the Presidential Precinct uh, and this great network of people that you continue to inspire uh, and facilitate. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Nancy and just say uh, it's been a great morning and I'm sure we could get to many, many more questions if we had the time. Thanks. I'd like to close us out by uh, just echoing um, Doug's thanks to our panelists, to Amalia, Narima, and Upaj. Uh, and thanks to you, Doug, as well, for keeping this conversation flowing. I think we all heard some really important and nuanced local perspectives this morning, perspectives that are not making it into, certainly into our newspapers and on our channels. Um, and I suspect that's the case around the world. And just great insights, I think, into some of the different ways that this crisis is playing out in our communities, but also some of the shared ways, actually. I think we have um, uh, some maybe more commonalities than we think in terms of the impact that it's having, especially on vulnerable people uh, in our own countries. Uh, and thanks to all of you who took the time to join us this morning for the Campfire Conversation. Uh, it's been so great to see you and thanks for your engaged uh, participation and, and for making the time. Uh, just a reminder, for those of you who are members of our online Presidential Precinct Network, we'll be hosting uh, a virtual cafe uh, tomorrow morning um, at 10 o'clock a.m. Charlottesville time. And this is just a super informal face-to-face um, -face chat. A couple of uh, our staff will jump on there. We'd love to see you there. Just a place uh, to catch up, see what's happening, support each other in our work, and exchange ideas. Um, so please uh, drop in if you can. It's, it's super informal and hope to see you there. Um, so I guess with that, I will um, uh, again, thank everyone, close us out. Please stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, thanks so much for joining and we'll see you next time.